several months ago. I was up here and you guys were, uh, you know, I think you got too close to your gas stove because uh, you, you, we celebrated, man, what God's done in 10 years and I've been part of that story. And you gave me an amazing bumper to put on my Forerunner. That bumper got put on my Forerunner this past Thursday or Friday. It looks amazing. <laughs> and my Forerunner is now sitting at the top of the ramp off the Mayor Parkway, not working. <laughs> so, I don't know what you all did to that bumper, but you jinxed the engine of my Forerunner. Uh, but that's okay, because... God's in control. So, <clears throat> hey, uh, if you don't know me, my name's Peter. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're grateful that you're here with us. If you're visiting this morning, we hope that you picked up a bulletin because there's ways for us to know you're here. And you can fill out an information card, drop it in one of the brown offering boxes with questions, with ways we can work with you and walk through you. Now, lots of information about what's going on and how to get connected. And if you're visiting, and if you read the front of your bulletin, you will read what we say a lot here at Calvary Church about what we're trying to do together. And together, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth. We're trying to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And the amazing thing that's so encouraging to see is those aren't just words that are printed on the cover of a bulletin, and they're not just words that a guy up front says, because that is actually what God's allowing us to do. And yesterday, as we think about building a body, there was an amazing gathering of uh, women here at the church, right? Oh, wow, man, the excitement is still carrying over. And there's like one dude who's like, yeah, it was an amazing gathering, right? Hundred, over a hundred ladies in a over here church. Um, and it was a great time, right? Part of being a body is connecting and building relationships. And it was a time to do that. And so I'm grateful for all those ladies who came out. And I'm grateful because the impetus and the catalyst for that was somebody in our body who just had a burden in a sense uh, that God had put something on her heart to try to gather women together, right, to continue to build out what God's doing to the ladies at the church. And so she came to me, and we talked, and draw Jim Taylor into it. Um, and somebody within our body had the dream to do something to serve our body and to gather our body and connect our body. And it was an amazing time yesterday. So thanks to all who came out. Hopefully you got some flowers from the flower bar uh, and had a good time together. And what's also great to see, right? We talk about <clears throat> growing as disciples. After this service, got a bunch of folks who are sticking around to be in our discipleship classes that are challenging, engaging, grateful for that. And we're so excited because this summer we have at least two different ways, really three ways that we're going to personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And uh, two big ways that we're doing that is through two summer trips that we're sending out. We're sending out teams of people from our body who, as part of their growth as a disciple, are going out to try to reach and impact others with God's love and truth. And so we've got a team of adults who are going to the Dominican Republic, and then we have a team of students and some awesome leaders who are going to Philly to try to serve there. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have opportunities to learn how we as a body can support those who are going out as disciples to reach and impact other people, right? And we're going to be able to support that, those trips through prayer, and we'll build that out and give you some 
tangible ways to do that. And uh, we also can do that by just supporting, right, through resources or finances. There's some supplies that they're going to need on the Dominican Republic trip as they go, as they do construction, as they do medical work, as they do uh, summer camps for kids. And so in the lobby for the next couple of weeks uh, is the amazing kiosk. And this time we do not want you to bring cranberry sauce or turkeys, all right? We have another opportunity. There's a bunch of these tags laying out there. And if you just say, you know what, at this point in my life, all, all I can afford to do is pray, man, there's a tag that'll give you some ways to pray. If you want to support their work with the kids or the medical work, there's a bunch of these different tags. And on the back, there's the clear instructions about what you can do to engage in this and how we collectively can support those people who are individually going out from our body to serve and to reach and impact other people, okay? So it's just great to see and to think about what God's doing uh, in our body with relationships and care and connection. It's great to see so many of you and our kids and students growing as disciples, and we're just so grateful that we're not a church that is inwardly focused just on us on the blue chairs, but active and engaged in our community and our relationships trying to impact folks with God's love. So thank you if you're part of our body for being part of that story because God's doing something in you and through you. And if you're not yet part of our body, thanks for being here and worshiping with us. Um, and so we're going to get into what God has for us and let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to worship you through song and to affirm truth about you. Thank you for this moment we have to come and open up your word, and you've preserved truth for us, and we're studying truth about the future and things to come, but we're grateful that they have application for us here today. And so I pray that you sovereignly know why every single one of us is in this room, and you sovereignly know what every single one of us is going through. And I, so I pray, Father, uh, for your glory and for the glory of Jesus, our coming King. Uh, the Spirit will work, and Jesus will be honored, and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you're visiting, uh, we're in a book of the Bible. What we do at Calvary is we open up a book of the Bible and we work through it paragraph through paragraph, often verse by verse. And we've been doing that through the book of Revelation for a while now. And so um, welcome to Revelation. And if it's your first Sunday, we're in the thick of it, right? And today we're going to talk about something that even if there's folks who don't come to church or people... Uh, in our communities who maybe wouldn't call themselves Christians or don't read the Bible, uh, there's several things in the book of Revelation that have kind of just made their way into popular culture. And we talked a little bit about this, right? But I think in popular culture, if you, you know, people have heard about seven horsemen of the apocalypse, people have heard about the Antichrist in popular culture, even if people don't go to church, if you say the number 666, everybody's kind of got, uh, they've heard about that, they, 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 they know that reference. And today, uh, that idea of this Antichrist, that number 666, that's what our text is going to be about, right? This is the passage in Revelation where that number 666 is introduced and is talked about. And so we're going to talk about it as we make our way there. But, but here's what's really, really interesting. And I Googled this. Because Google is the purveyor of all truth. And so, <clears throat> wanting to tell you the truth, if right now you get bored in the middle of the sermon, and if you pull up your phone, and if you get the same search results that I got the other day, if you Google 666, I got 602 million results, right? If you Google 666, there's 602 million results. This is the text that starts all that up. But here's what's really, really interesting about this text. 
in this passage, there is something far deeper going on than just the discussion of a number. There is this, this reality underneath that discussion and, and surrounding that discussion that was of huge practical, will be of huge practical import for the people when they are living in that moment, in that time. And there's this huge reality that even for us today, if we're not yet living in the future time that's being described here, that's true for us. This isn't just a passage about a number. It's a passage about something deeper and every day and in your heart and in your soul that we all wrestle with and have to decide about. And so that's what we're also going to think about today and how that deeper reality shapes where we find ourselves in the story today. Our text is going to be Revelation um, chapter 13. Jeez, 666 is in chapter 13. I just realized that. That's why my forerunner broke. It's all coming together. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to approach this today. I'm going to set up the context in case you haven't been here last week or you've missed it or whatever, you're new, of of what's even going on to sub-chapter 13. Then we're going to kind of, I'm going to read the text in its entirety, and then we're going to kind of move pretty quickly through six or seven realities, facts about this creature that's called, this person called the Antichrist, and then we're going to discuss, okay, practically today, what does that have to do with me? Practically today, what does that have to do with you? So here's the context of the text. This week picks up from where we were last week. And last week was kind of this bracketed uh, recounting of different historical moments when Satan has or when Satan will try to attack God and or his people. Last week was kind of this bracketed text that talked about throughout moments in history, there's different times where Satan did attack and did try to rage against God, and there's moments being described when he will. And towards the end of that, there was this piece where God expels him out of heaven for a final last time, right? Evicts him out of heaven. And what we talked about last week is, um, man, he was angry, He was kind of like that guy I described in that basketball game who gets thrown out of the game and there's rage and there's chaos that follows him in the wake out of that. And we ended last week in chapter 12 of verse 17 and says this, then the dragon became furious with a woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God. As the chapter winds down, what it says is, hey, this enemy of God's people is angry. And he knows his time is short. And he's committed to creating as much chaos and destruction and pain and suffering as he can, not just for everybody, but particularly for the people of God. And it left us in that moment. And what the chapter today does, what chapter 13 does, is it unfolds and kind of unpacks some of that attack and that strategy that the enemy uses to, in the future, attack the people of God. That's what chapter 13 is, right? We see that the enemy is now focused on attacking God's people. And chapter 13, taking the perspective that we're taking for Revelation, which we've said a lot, may or may not be right, but it's the one we're taking. Chapter 13 is then going to flesh out the way in which he tries to attack God's people, okay? So I'm going to read chapter 13. We'll talk about it. We'll pull some observations, and then we'll pull some truths for you and I today. So Uh, chapter 13, and there's going to be a question about the approach we're taking to the book of Revelation. So 
just keep that in the back of your mind so you can answer it when that question comes. Okay, here's what chapter 13 says. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horn, and blasphemous names on its heads. And that beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. On one of its, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was giving a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell on the earth. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast and its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. <clears throat> that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Lots again, right? We're in this passage of Revelation where there is like symbols and, and, and metaphors, and we got to process our way through what's going on. So in this chapter, we're introduced um, to this character that's referred to as the beast. And so what in the world, how do we understand uh, who and what this beast is? Well, there depends kind of on the approach that you've taken in the book of Revelation. Uh, that kind of impacts your understanding of the book. So there's two different big ways we said the book of Revelation can be understood, right? One of those, which perspective are we taking? What perspective are we taking of the book of Revelation? Yes, that makes me so happy. Good. Well, there's another big perspective we said that is the preterist approach, right? Now, the preterist approach is that when John wrote the book of Revelation, he was referencing things that took place shortly thereafter in the early church. And so if you're taking the preterist approach, and we may have a slide about some of these different um, understandings, but if you're taking the preterist approach, what that will say is that this was a past leader who persecuted the early church. Because under the preterist approach, it's saying that these aren't things to come in our future, but John wrote the book early, and all of the prophecies, mostly, largely, were fulfilled when there was persecution of the early church. And so under a preterist approach, 
which has a lot of value and potential to we said. It's a past leader who persecuted the early church. Because of dating issues that we've talked about now at least two or three times, I don't mean like dating a guy and a girl dating. I mean like dating of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> We're landing on a futurist view. And so in the futurist view, there's a few views. Some people who hold this view says that all of this stuff about the beast is just this metaphor for evil. There's another idea that all of this stuff about the beast doesn't actually describe a person, but it describes, again, symbolically false teaching or heresy. There's another view that, well, as you can see, right, that this is actually a person who somehow is going to revive the Roman Empire. What most scholars and most theologians and most pastors within this view would say is that actually this describes a human leader, that actually this describes a human individual. And so, that's the approach that we're going to take, like I, in case you're visiting, you've never heard me say this before, but this is where we're landing. Could I be wrong? I could be. And so we're not coming at this to you guys saying this absolutely is the only possible one. We're saying based on wisdom, based on what seems to make sense, this is the view we're taking, but we're taking it humbly with an open hand because these all could be it. But So here's kind of the first observation, and we're going to kind of move somewhat quickly through these because we've already read it. But the first thing we see is this, that Satan's attacks on God's people during the tribulation will be through a human leader empowered by Satan. Satan's attacks on God's people during the tribulation will be through a human leader empowered by Satan. Uh, again, if you want to know, well, what do you mean Satan attack on God's people during the tribulation? I've heard about a rapture. Is there raptures or not? We've talked about that a lot. You can check it out on past sermons. The text then walks us through some characteristics about this individual. And the very next thing we've seen kind of in this first verse, this phrase, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his uh, heads, right? Ten horns. We saw this again last week, and in the book of Daniel, uh, the text clearly sets out that this refers to 10 different countries or 10 different nations. And so what we've drawn from that, right, is the second observation about this human leader, that this leader might, might lead a 10-nation confederacy. Now, throughout history, Christians have gone crazy. Okay, And every time there's like an alliance between some countries in the time of a war or in treaties or in the United Nations, Christians start trying to count to 10 and think, yes, this has to be it, right? It doesn't seem to be it yet. But what might be the truth is that this leader might lead a 10-nation confederacy. And as this human leader emerges, whose focus it is to try to attack the people of God who are clearly on earth during that time, how does he do that? What have we read about how he conducts himself? Well, we've seen it in verse 1 again that he's blasphemous names on its head. In verses 5 and 6, We've read that he's got this mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It's opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, which means his people, right? And so we see one another characteristic about this leader, and that as he's leading, this leader is going to speak against God and God's people. His words are going to be this <clears throat> put down, this talking trash, this demeaning, this insulting 
God and the people of God is going to be an establishing himself, if we're correct, in that same capacity. And it's not only going to be his words through which he does that, because he's going to have, again, if our understanding is correct, I'm not going to say that every time because I've disclaimed that enough, but if our understanding is correct, it's not just going to be words because we're also going to see conduct. And the next, right, as it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And so not only is there going to be insulting God and insulting his people, what this suggests is there's going to be some conduct that's between that, some actions that's within that. And here's the fourth observation about this leader. This leader will not just talk bad about, but will attack and harm God's people. And then there's something really unusual about this leader because the text has told us this in different places. In verse 3, the text tells us, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. We read other verses that discuss this concept of this mortal wound, right? Next verse that describes that, you can flip to it. It exercises the authority whose mortal wound was healed. And then one more passage that kind of talks about this. That was the beast that was wounded by the sword, and yet it lived. Wounded by the sword, and yet it lived. Two other verses talking about mortal wound, mortal wound. And so what we can draw from that is this. That, if our understanding is correct, this leader, who is a human leader who is talking bad about God and the people of God, who is attacking the people of God, is also a leader who is going to have a near-death experience and or be resuscitated or resurrected. What does that look like? I don't know. But that's what the text seems to set up. Again, we're an interesting lot, us Christians. Did you know that? Right, I think one of the takeaways is just let's not be goofy, okay? Because what often happens too, I mean, I've lived, I've lived through the 70s. I've lived through all this prophetic stuff. I lived when lots of people were taking lots of bus rides to go to lots of conferences with lots of charts. And everybody knew who the Antichrist was in that moment. And everybody was wrong, okay? What sometimes happens is there's an assassination attempt of a leader, And so then us Christians start writing books about how that person must be the Antichrist because he was assassinated. Doesn't seem to be that yet. But one day, someday, what seems to happen is this leader that is anti-Christ, meaning anti the things of Jesus, in many ways setting himself up as the king instead of Jesus, will have a near-death experience and or be resurrected or resuscitated. And when that happens, what do you think, what's the outcome of that going to be? How are all the people who have seen that on Twitter or heard about it, right, or seen Instagram photos of that happening outside the hospital and the news feed, how is the world going to react in that moment? Verse 4 tells us that they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Another verse, verse 5, right? And so says, right? Allowed to get, worshipped the image of the beast. This bizarre, quasi-miraculous, 
atypical near-death experience, resuscitation, maybe resurrection, causes people to say, whoa, this doesn't happen every day. And the response then is going to be like, okay, this dude is, who is like this dude? Like, there's nobody like this dude because look at what just happened. And the sixth observation from that is this, that because of that, the leader will be worshipped and there will be consequences for not worshipping them. This leader will be worshipped and there will be consequences for not worshipping them. I skimmed over it, but we see those consequences in verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And then the last characteristic or attribute that we pull from this today is is one that we've already mentioned and teed up a few times, right? One that even if you've never read these verses, you may be familiar with. uh, Verses 16 through 18. Also, see, what happens is there's this leader, and then the leader is going to have this associate. This leader is going to have this right-hand person who's doing all these things, and that right-hand person is going to cause all, both small, both and small, rich and poor, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast, which the number is 666. From that, here's the observation, and then we'll spend a little bit of time but talking about that, that this leader will have a seal or a mark associated with him. This leader is going to have some sort of seal or mark associated with him. For generations, since this was written, Christians and even non-Christians have tried to figure out two things. <clears throat> Who's this leader and what is this mark all about? Who's the leader and what in the world is this number 666? And everybody, have you seen the movie National Treasure? I love National Treasure. Nick Cage is the he's most unique actor out there. But man, I do love some of his movies. National Treasure, right? In National Treasure, Nick Cage and his crew are running around and they're looking at the Declaration of Independence, they're looking at the desk wherever, they're looking at the back of coins, and they're just trying to put it all together to solve the mystery. And they want to be the first person to solve the mystery. And for centuries and centuries, Christians have wanted to solve the mystery of who is this leader, and let me decode this number. And along the way, each generation has offered its own solution to what this mark is. There was a period of time when Christians, and if you want to get lost down rabbit holes, just you could get lost down rabbit holes. There was a period of time where Christians, well-meaning, I'm sure, but they thought that social security numbers were the mark of the beast. Could they, could they be? Maybe, I don't know. But social security numbers are the mark of the beast. There was a time... When new technology comes out, and that's the mark of the beast. There was a time when microchips were created, right? Long time ago. That was the mark of the beast because it's going to be implanted. And it is interesting. Now we see, I, I never use my passcode anymore. You know what I do? Take my little thumb, and I put on that little circle on my iPhone. Boop! Everything opens up. Do you guys use Apple Pay? It's an amazing invention. Because you can just like put your thumb on your iPhone and it makes things happen. Like taking my wallet out, finding the credit card, that's way too much work for me, right? 
But some people will say that biometrics, like the thumb fingerprint reader, is somehow the mark of the beast. I'm, I'm being a little, could it be? I, maybe. But can we with certainty say that every piece of new technology that we're uncomfortable with absolutely is the mark of the beast? I don't know if that's all that wise. Now, this idea that the text says about um, their number, can you go back one more slide if you don't mind? Okay, so this calls, let the one who's understand calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man and his number. So here's what the text is saying. This person has a number associated with him. This person has a number associated with him. In this culture, that idea was super common um, because Greek, uh, Hebrew, Latin numbers, all of those letters in that alphabet had numerical equivalents, okay? Like we do the same thing. Like probably when you were a little kid, you wrote your buddy a code. And A was one, B was two, C was three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so you'd, a lot, and you'd have a row of numbers like four, seven, five, 92, three, four, which was like, do you want to sleep over at my house Friday night and watch wrestling Saturday morning, okay? But we, a, in every other language in that culture, they did the same thing. So in other languages, in cultures in this time, letters had numerical equivalents. And often, letters of the alphabet often served as numbers. And so what people would do is they would look at the letters of the alphabet. They'd link that with numbers. So my name, Peter, would have some number with it. I didn't have time to figure out what letter of the alphabet P is or E is or T is or E is. But, but that was common in that culture. If you go to the island of Pompeii, and if you tore it, you will see some graffiti that kind of looks like this image of this graffiti here. This is, this graffiti looks good. This is not the spray-painted graffiti on 25 Connector going into Monroe that says like, I love you, Betsy, love forever. <clears throat> this, is some, this is some good penmanship graffiti. I don't know what this graffiti says in Pompeian language, but there is graffiti in Pompeii that says this, I love her whose number is 545. Oh, some forlorn teenage boy got the spray paint of the Pompeian equivalent and it's like, man, that sweet Pompeian neighbor of mine whose name is whatever that's linked with 545. I love her so much. I want to write some graffiti to testify to it forever, right? There is on the island of Pompeii some love-struck young boy in writing like this said, I love her whose number is 545. And so using that technique, I think there's a fancy name for it like Jeremonomy or something like that, right? Using that technique throughout history, Christians and non-Christians have tried to figure out the secret code to assign numbers from something with people's names so that they can be the first one with certainty to say this person is the Antichrist. There is pretty, when they do that, there is some pretty compelling links between some of these numbers and Nero, which does make it somewhat compelling that, well, perhaps is that preterist view right? Was John prophesying about what Nero would have done? But again, the dating's wrong. But doing this, pretty much every bad leader in history that people haven't liked has ended up being the Antichrist. You can pick the country. You can pick the leader. 
you can pick the side of the political party in America. And when one person, everybody has tried to run the numbers to make the 666 link with people's names. And I'm not sure that anybody has yet landed on it. And what lots of scholars think is one day, someday, if the futurist interpretation of Revelation is correct, there will be a leader that is present during the tribulation, which doesn't seem that we're in yet. There will be a leader present during the tribulation, and it will be so crystal clear what all this means, we won't need to do fancy trigonometry to try to make it sense. But if the text is correct, this human leader will have a number or a mark associated with them. But ultimately, this chapter isn't just about a number. And ultimately, what we do is we spend a lot of time about the important things of a number, but this chapter is not ultimately and most deeply about a number. The number 666, you can test me on this, is mentioned, how many times has it been mentioned in this chapter? Once! Here's a rule. If you don't really know the answer, you just say something with confidence. <laughs> Once, right? It's like when I'm playing basketball, I don't know if the shot's going in, but every time I shoot, I'm going to be like, made it! Woo! Because then when I actually make it, I'll be like, I told you I was going to make it, baby. Right? Confidence. One time. But there is another word that is mentioned five times. There's another word that is mentioned five times in this passage. Does anybody know what that word might be? Don't say what Bill Huff told me this week. And... <laughs> It's not and. There's another big word, another church word that's mentioned five times in this chapter. Some of you are looking right now, and I'll, I'll short-circuit it for you. It's this. Ready? Worship. Worship. 666 is mentioned one time. Worship is mentioned five times. If I did my checking correctly, in verse 4, 8, 12, 15, there's mentions of worship. And that's because this chapter ultimately, ultimately at its deepest isn't a chapter about a number. It's ultimately at its deepest a chapter about worship. And it tees up the question. For every single person, the early church readers, the readers in the 1970s, the readers now of this question, what are you worshiping now and what are you going to be worshiping in the future? What are you worshiping now, Christians, and what are you going to worship in the future? Since this is a worship chapter, Let's spend more time thinking about worship than trying to decode 666. What is worship? Lots of different definitions, but for today, I think here's a good definition, and it says this, by a guy named Harold Best out of Unceasing Worship. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen God or in light of a choosing God. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or a choosing God. Let me amend that. Let me, let me, let me, let me paraphrase it a little bit. It's, it's this. Ready? I, I'll put a little bracket here, and this is what also does. Worship is the continuous outpouring 
of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of what I think is most important or worthy. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of what I think is most important or worthy. Great to write it down. Helpful definition. But if all we do is able to memorize a good definition of worship, then we're not, we're, we're missing what this chapter is about because now we got to personalize it. Now we got to make that apply to me. And we need to make that apply to you and we need to make that apply to us. And so there's a blank that I want us to think about. Flowing out of those definitions, I pour out all that I am, <clears throat> all that I do, and all that I can ever become on blank because I think that is what is most important or worthy. And there's something that at lowest common denominator, every single one of us is writing in that blank. What every single one of us in this room, if you've been in church for more than five minutes, you know that it should probably be Jesus, God, Bible. But for every single one of us in this room, there are moments when the church answer isn't the real answer. You don't know what that line is for me. And I don't know what's on that line for you. But God does. And I can fool you. And you can fool God. I mean, you can, you can fool me, but we can't fool God. We can't fool God. Some of you are like, well, I don't know, that takes a little much thought. Let me make it even easier for you. Next line. All that I do, the energy and time I pour out, and all that I seem to ultimately prioritize focuses on blank, which suggests that blank is what I think and most important, and that is what I worship. What do you put on that line? Don't fool yourself. I'm not asking you to stand up. We don't have any mics up here that we're going to pass around, right? So I don't know what you're going to say. It, we're not asking you to publicly say it. I'm not asking you to write it down with your name and drop it in the offering box. But what would I write on that blank? Honestly, what would you write on that blank? All that I do, the energy and time I pour out, all that I seem to ultimately prioritize and focus upon is blank. God? Your kids? Your career, my rights, my desires, my calling the shots, comfort, no suffering. Whatever that thing is that makes the world feel a little less painful when things are pretty bad. Whatever you would write on that line suggests that that is what you think and I think is most important and we worship. What goes on the line? We can, talk, we can talk deeply and richly and philosophically about worship, but at the end of the day, every single one of us has to try to come to an honest assessment of what's on that line. Because otherwise, it's just intellectual discussion that doesn't impact the way we live our lives. It's interesting. There's some things from the text that help focus on and talk about this idea of worship and what's 
on the line. The text reveals a few realities about worship that we're going to talk about for a few minutes. And the first one has to do with the story that these people are in, the moment in which they will find themselves and a moment in which we might find ourselves today. I, when I was a younger lad, growing up on October Lane in Trumbull, Connecticut, there was a moment <clears throat> where my, <laughs> I don't know where my parents were. They were foolishly not there. Uh, there was a moment where my 90-something-year-old great-grandmother was put in charge of myself. That normally would have been fine because I was a good little compliant boy. But there was a person whose family attended Calvary Church for many years who was hanging out with me that day. Pretty compliant boy as well, but I had a little more of a, ah, let's go take on the world streak about him. So this person, it was winter. Winter. There was a pond located near my house. And it was winter. And back in the 80s, winter was cold in Connecticut. Don't send me any emails about my political agenda. I'm just telling you all it's true. It was cold. Like, it would snow on Halloween, and you'd still have snow on the ground, like, till Mother's Day, right? Oh, I think I miss those days, but maybe not. But it was winter. There was a pond near our house, and we, in whatever age we were, thought, hey, we're going to be explorers, and we're going to walk across the ice. Okay. When your parents tell you children, don't walk on the ice, don't walk on the ice, okay? But we wrongly and foolishly walked on the ice. Now, it wasn't the hugest pond in the world, but we're like, oh, walking on the ice is fun. Let's kick some rocks, ba ha ha, la ha ha, right? All of a sudden, I felt myself getting very cold very quickly, and I was in the water, right? Because the ice was not built up enough. The ice cracked underneath me, and all of a sudden, I've literally plunged into this pond through this thing in the ice, and this is, I, I didn't know much, but I knew this actually could end up not being a good situation. The way, the way in which my mom found out is another story for another day. But in that moment, right, I'm like under the thing, and in that moment when I am cold, when I'm scared, when I'm in a place I don't want to find myself, you know what I started doing? I started scrambling for something strong that I could grab onto. I'm like, I don't have anything underneath me. And I need to somehow get something that I can just land on and fall upon because I don't like this moment. And so I need something that's going to support me and that I can rest on that's going to give me the ability to get out of this mess in which I found myself. These readers in the book of Revelation, man, the, the thing, it was a mess. The situation that we've been studying for months together, and in particular this tribulation, it was unbelievably difficult. Everything that was solid and was stable had splintered underneath them, and their lives were going down, whether Christian or non-Christian. And in that moment, when everything was unsettled, everything was falling apart, what they were doing was what I was doing, which is what you do. We look for something that can be steady to hold us in that moment. We look for something that can support us in that moment. We look to something that can say, man, I have longings for things to be better. I have longings for things to be secure. I have longings for things not to be this way. What can I fall on that's going to support those longings? What can I worship? What is most dependable? What is going to fulfill everything that I want? 
Here's the first reality from this story. The times of hardship and uncertainty are times of worship. And I don't mean they're times that you put on whatever favorite Maverick City or Chris Tomlin or traditional hymns. I'm not talking about like there's times where you go through the act of worship. I'm saying those are times when you lean into what you think is most worthy. You lean into what you think is most dependable. You lean into what you think is most trustworthy. And you go all in on that thing to support you and to hold you and to help you stand and to help you make it. And at the end of the day, that thing is either God or it's anti-God, counterfeit God, not God. Those are the two options. I, I fell on the ice, but when I life falls apart, when I don't experience comfort, when I experience pain, when I have uncertainty, when I don't like what's going on, when I have anxiety, when I'm freaking out, I fall on something and I have to choose, am I going to fall on God or am I going to fall on something anti-God, anti-Christ? And if you're in a hard moment this morning, when you'll be in a hard moment, and in hard moments that we've all been in, the question is not whether we are anchoring ourselves to something because we think that is worthy. The question is, what are we anchoring ourselves to because we think that is worthy? And here's the reality. There are many false things other than God that temporarily will do the trick. I could lie to you. I could say, oh, and if it's ever anything but God, it's never going to satisfy what you're longing for. No, that's not true. Because the reason we all sin is because that sin, that's something other than God, does temporarily satisfy what we want it to satisfy. That's the reality. But the reality is ultimately this, that thing may temporarily satisfy what we want it to satisfy, but it will not ultimately satisfy what we want to have satisfied. We have to be people who are willing to live our lives for delayed gratification. Microwave popcorn's great. 30 seconds. Pop, 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 boo. Many of us, we want the microwave popcorn of life getting better. We want the microwave popcorn of everything being comfortable, everything being good, everything the way it should be. And we don't want to delay that longing. We want to meet that longing now. And so we turn to things when things are cracking underneath us that will enable us to meet that longing now and temporarily they might. But ultimately, they won't. And we see something else about what shapes our worship. And I know I'm going long, but we're going long because my car broke this morning. So I feel like that gives me reason to do it, okay? Uh, Revelation 13, 11 through 14. It's really interesting. Let's, if we have that, I think we do. It says this, right? Next verse. Oh, maybe not next verse. Let me just read it. 11 through 14. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like the lamb and it spoke like the dragon. And it um, exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Verse 12 says, worship the first beast. But then in verse 14, it says something different. And interestingly, something else. What it says in verse 14. And by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives 
those who dwell on the earth. There's worship, but that worship of the beast, that worship of the Antichrist is based on deceit. The deceit is what caused people to think that that thing would support what they wanted to support, that that thing was worthy. And here's the second reality we see from that. The truth that you believe shapes what you worship. The truth that you believe shapes what you worship. And Satan works through lies to cause misplaced worship. The truth that you believe, the truth that I believe, shapes what we worship, and Satan works through lies to cause misplaced worship. Let's go back to my chart for a minute. Go back to my line. What did you, what would you write in that line? All that I do, the energy and time I pour, all that I seem to ultimately prioritize focuses on blank. Whatever you wrote in that line, whatever I write in that line, if it is something other than God, then we've put that in the line because we've believed a lie. If we are worshiping something other than God, we've put that in that line because we have believed some sort of lie. Lies about what will ultimately give us delight. Lies about how dependable that thing is. Lies minimizing the reality of God. And when I have to deal with misplaced worship and you have to deal with misplaced worship, then we need to deal with the lies that have gotten us to a place of misplaced worship. And in order to deal with the lies, you know what we need to do? We need to gaze at the truth. If there's something in this line that I put there and you put there and we put there that is not God, we have put it there because we have believed some lie about that thing. And in order to deal with misplaced worship, we need to deal with the lies that we've believed. And in order to deal with the lies that we've believed, we need to gaze at the truth. We need to gaze at the truth of the goodness of God. We need to gaze at the truth of the sovereignty of God. We need to gaze at the truth of the promises of God, of the character of God, of the steadfast love of God, of the faithfulness of God, of the majesty of God, at the love of God. And many times the lies start because we doubt the love of God. And to deal with the lies, we need to gaze at the truth, and we need to gaze at the truth of the love of God. And here's the last point, and I'll call the worship team to come up here. Here's the third reality. The worship of Jesus, man, it calls for endurance and faith. It's not easy. They were buffeted by all sorts of lies. We're buffeted by all sorts of alternative gods. We're buffeted by all sorts of pride and arrogance in our hearts. We're buffeted by circumstances and by challenges, by we want easy way outs, by I, don't, I think God let me down. And this is not a like skip through the park eating cotton candy walk. The worship of God calls for endurance and faith. Verse 10 says this, Here, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. At the end of the day, the text shows that people in that moment, just like people in this moment, have to make a choice about what they're going to worship. They have to make a choice about what they are going to align with 
for safety and for hope. They have to make a choice about what they are going to be marked by and sealed by. And there's some people in that moment who will make a choice, just like there are some people in this moment who make the choice that they're going to be marked and sealed by something anti-Christ. And in that day, people are going to make a choice to be sealed by something anti-Christ because they don't want to experience that person's harm and that, person's, that person punishing them for not worshiping them. But the challenge for those people is they may escape the harm that comes from the anti-Christ, but they're setting themselves up for punishment that comes from God. But then there's another group of people who are like, man, we're not going to align with something anti-Christ. We're going to align with Christ. And even if we suffer here and now, we will suffer here and now with endurance and with patience because we know one day, someday, we will never, ever, 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 ever experience the punishment from God because we have been sealed in Jesus through the Spirit and we're going to go all in. At some point, everybody has to make a choice about what they're going to align with, what they're going to be sealed by, what they're going to be marked with, what they're going to look to for safety and for hope and for escape from shame and pain. And the challenge is, look to Jesus. The challenge is, look to Jesus. And looking to Jesus does not mean that you try harder. Looking to Jesus means that you try less and full surrender to him because he was the one who was punished for us and because of us instead of us so that we would never, ever have to experience separation from God, but we could only know and only will know forgiveness and restoration and friendship with God through what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we benefit from that, we effectuate from that, we receive that, we become sealed in that, not by putting five bucks in the offering, but by faith. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of works, so that you don't get to try to take the credit and I don't get to try to get the credit. And we have an amazing opportunity. And, and, and for those of you, look, at, uh, we had to put something in line. And the question for all of us this morning is, man, whose side are we on? Who are we aligning with? Who have we rested in for sealing and for safety? Jesus or something anti-Jesus? For those of us who are believers, who are Christians, who have responded in faith to what Jesus did on the cross, man, this is a moment that we have to remember what Jesus did to us for celebration of the Lord's Supper. And if you're a Christian, what I'm going to invite you to do in just a moment is I'm going to invite you to come forward and take some elements and return to your seat and hold them, and then we're all going to take them together at that time. If you're not a Christian, then this is something for us to remember what Jesus has done, but I would challenge you to honestly assess what are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What are you throwing yourselves on to hold and to support every longing that you have and the separation that you may feel from God? And is it going to do the trick? Or you're already starting to sense deep downside it's only going to take you further down under. What I'd love to do is give all of us a moment and, and then I'll invite you forward. But let's just pause. No music. Just a chance for you, if you're a Christian man, to reflect upon what Jesus has done for you to ask for forgiveness, <clears throat> that you have put other things other than him in that line, 
to ask the Holy Spirit in this moment, Spirit, will you allow me to gaze on truth at the beauty of Jesus so that I may worship him and worship him alone? Take a moment where you are to pray those things. And as you're ready and when you're ready, I'll invite you to come forward and take the elements back to your seat and then we'll take them together.